understanding of this whole thing, just to kind of get us rolling, is, you know, the Bible says the body is the temple of the soul. And all these states of consciousness and realizations and everything that we're talking about have a physiological basis. Every thought we think, some, there's something happening in the brain. Even though the thought may not come from the brain, at least the brain is, is enabling us to have it the way a radio enables us to listen to music, even though the music isn't in the radio. I have encountered people, in fact I'm going to interview one next week, who have had profound, dramatic, sudden awakenings without having a clue as to what they were or what was going on. Holly had that kind of experience. She went by the name Sarojini. Some of you may have seen her interview a couple of years ago. If that happens, there could be a very intense period, sometimes lasting years, of ketchup, where the bot, not the thing you put on french fries, but catching up, where the body has to adjust and accommodate to support and be able to reflect that awakening. Uh, it's just the way it works. Uh, a radical change in consciousness necessitates a radical change in physiological functioning in order to be sustained and supported. So I think that's the theme of what we were talking about, and that's enough of an introduction for me. I'll just let others kind of carry on. I think increasingly it's, it's, it tends to be a, a gentler process nowadays. Traditionally it was rougher, mostly because there's such an evolutionary shift now. There's a globalization, a shift in consciousness globally. It's like when, when you move at the speed of the group, it's gentle transition. Whereas if somebody's just popping up, it's, it's much rougher. So for sure, the stories about, you know, even 10 years ago, two years sitting on a park bench or whatever people went through. Eckhart Tolle. Yeah, that it's, it's not as crude now. It's just not. It tends to be a glimpse, a glimpse, a glimpse. Um, also, there's more awareness about our body, okay? At the, other, at the other side of it, we have, like, what are we doing with, like, technology and all these, you know, Wi-Fi going through our bodies and all these other things, you know? So that, so that area, we don't know what's that doing to the body. But some kind of awareness, um, uh, no, not some awareness, some, some kind of shift in the global vibration is making it easier to embody. For sure, in general, it's gentler now, for sure. But at the same time, um, you, you, you must have found yourself that, you know, sometimes you have a pain in your knee and you can do everything to fix your knee. But actually you discover, you know what, it's issue-based. It's because I've got conflict here, I've got resistance to this. So very often the body will, will reflect an issue because your brain hasn't copped onto it. And so the mind will use the body for its own purposes. It will use the body to reflect and to show you and to teach you. The, the pole will use any tool it can to show you where resistance is. And so in, in that way, it's like, how can we ignore the body? It's talking to you all the time. So in getting to know the body and getting to know how it talks to you, how it communicates to you, if it's through the chakra system, the, that anatomy of the spirit, if that's where, where you feel something is stuck. Because for the Jack character, physical pain used to be as a result of a chakra. The, it, it, immediately it would be like, there's something wrong with my hip, and it's like, hold on, if my right hip is this, if my left hip is this, and I, knew, I would know exactly what the issue was by understanding the chakras. It wasn't my physiology at all. But of course it took years of like, you know, medically and going to doctors and going to this, and there's nothing wrong. After a while it was like, there's going to be nothing wrong with this either. You can have a chest x-ray, but there's actually going to find, they're going to find nothing. So in the end, there was a figuring out of what's physiological and what's 
the chakra system pulling from the physical body in order to balance itself out, in order to purify the energy body. So that's how it used to work for me. So I got really adept at picking up what was going on at a chakra level. And the body then was like, once I got the wiring set up, it's like, hold on, this is the back of my, this is my back. This is nothing wrong with my back. That's my heart chakra. What's going on? So that holistic view kicked in and it was really useful, really useful. And it's not that it's really complex. It's just that if chakras make sense to you, then start listening to that. But if you're a real in-the-body person and you're really grounded and you don't pick up energies, then let the body tell you. Because, you know, it mightn't be that your mind is, is running the loop. It could be that you don't even see that your mind is running the loop. You know, sometimes there's issues there and you don't see them at all. People are telling you and you're like, no, I'm not like that. And eventually, of course, something goes, oops. So before you have distance from your issue, before you have distance from a bit of a belief that's still running, before you get that distance, the mind will use the body for its own purposes. It will do that, you know. So, so, so to find out how it works for you, how, how are you being led, how is spirit pulling you into the awareness of where you think you're something else, where you think you're your character, where you're honoring a belief, you know. I would like to mention the importance of one truth, and that is, is that with expansion of consciousness, with awakening, with uncoiling of that consciousness which has been contracted onto itself, there are several stages, and the one very important stage known as a repose or return into the body, literally. It could be a return into the body from one of powerful, powerful impact. Or it could be a return into the body from, let's say, months or even years of being in a very unsettling place, neither in heaven nor on earth any longer. So that repose, that return, could be called variously. For instance, Francis, in his talk, uh, mentioned today awakening from awakening, when the deepening of the expansion of consciousness and deepening of understanding and deepening of experience that, you know, that at first ruptures this reality into a greater contrast between the subject and object. Because when we, when we first awaken, we awaken to our reality, obviously, we awaken to consciousness. Awakening only happens in consciousness, but on that level where consciousness has been coiled into itself. So, the very purpose of spiritual practice, in my understanding of reading various traditions, various, when I say various, it's like from traditions that were born in Indian subcontinent to traditions that, let's say, were born in shamanic um, parts of the world where the, that particular traditions were practiced throughout um, many, many different cultures. And that is to rebuild one's light body. Why? It is because when consciousness awakens to itself, it needs to go back, go back, and find a place where it can reside. Literally, it has, to, it has to become a tenant of a new premises. 
prior to that, the complete objectification caused consciousness to identify with the body-mind conglomerate exclusively. And that, that brought, brought a whole culture, a whole culture, a whole civilization, where we actually teach our children, grandchildren, and the whole culture revolves that, around that objectification. Because we perceive everything like that. Our world is the world of object and subject. And we drown in that. And because of that, our subtle body, our body of light, shrunk, literally shrunk. It's like on a physical plane, if you don't exercise certain muscles, if you don't walk, they will become an atrophy. Don't be surprised that actually the subtle body is not very much different. It has the same, very the same principles. If that body, which, just to give a clue, in terms of like, what do I mean by that? Because light body, it could be taken very kind of like uh, an abstract term. Actually, in yogic terminology, it's the pranic sheet. It's the pranic body. The pranic body is extremely important. If any of you have delved into that profound teaching, it's the pranic body, it's the one that connects the manumaya kosha with anandamaya, with anamaya kosha, which means the body of mind and the body of made of cells. This, this is what makes a prana, maya, kosha extremely important. Because it is where, it is where all these, so to speak, pathways, pathways, it's, this is how this whole soup, that's how this whole jelly of human being is being held together. It's all empowered by the same source, by the same power. However, it has a place where consciousness has to reside. Prior to awakening, it resides in the physical body with complete and total identity, with being this physical organism. Story only comes later. The reason why we identify with the story because the story lives in our body. And this is why I'm always pointing towards these new discoveries. To me, it feels that the discoveries in the field of neuroscience and neurophysiology are doing what quantum physics did in the last century, in the 20th century. The whole spirituality is about to undergo profound renaissance and revolution of understanding. Very, very. Even, I remember Dalai Lama said that if science today will discover that Buddhism is wrong, we'll have to adjust our teaching to fit the requirements of modern times. And I feel this is a profound statement of somebody who is leading a very ancient old tradition. It shows that it's a refusal to calcify, to calcify to something which has been known for centuries, perhaps millennia. So, I feel in this particular panel, if this is my part, if this is my voice, I would like to play, uh, place an emphasis on that recognition and realization. Why spiritual practice is important at all is because we're literally rebuilding that body which has shrunk, historically shrunk. Consciousness has to reside somewhere, it has to live somewhere. It cannot re-enter the old, so to speak, um, vehicle. It cannot re-enter the old um, vessel. Pouring new wine and the old wine can... <coughs> Thank you. So this is perhaps my uh, addition to the, you know, sort of 
that light body, variously known in many, many different traditions, like in Kabbalah, explicitly known as Merkaba, you know, in yogic tradition, it is literally known as the, that very much, you know, the increase of prana. If you really go down, if you boil down the yogic teaching, it all boils down to prana. It all boils down, boils down to that very rebuilding your pranic sheet. And that's what yogis, real yogis do. That's what they do. The way they eat, the way they think, the way they do their practices, they build in their pranic sheet so that they can reside there as consciousness. When the grace of Shiva will then grant that complete state of unity, Shiva can reside somewhere. It cannot reside in the cells of a human body if it's not prepared. Because human body is not perfect as it is as we know it today. I interviewed David Godman a couple of weeks ago who uh, wrote all those books about Ramana Maharshi and Papaji and everything. And I asked him why Ramana Maharshi spent so many years, almost a couple of decades, uh, in samadhi, in caves, after his initial awakening as a young man. And David's explanation was not, not that he would know for sure. Can somebody tell us? There was a physiological restructuring that needed to take place. Uh, I don't know if Ramana said that and David was quoting him or if that was just David's understanding, but he, he, he was saying that even on a cellular level, every cell would have had to be restructured or rebuilt to accommodate the radical awakening that he had undergone. So that's the principle, you know, just using it, because everyone holds him as the gold standard of enlightened people and also he had to go through it, you know, in order to uh, support and maintain his awakening in, a, in an abiding way. And since you mentioned Ramana, just because today we will not have the time to go through all this, and I'm sure today, tonight might be the night, because like we'll rep we cannot replicate it. We'll, we'll speak tomorrow, probably using different... You For know, sure, we'll, go, we'll be talking you know. about something else. So it seems to me, since Rick has mentioned Ramana's awakening, those of us who understand, again, the way the physiology works... For instance, it takes 24 years for endocrine system fully mature. It is very well known, even within the Indian tradition, when awakenings happen at very early stage, it's not really desirable. But it does happen to exceptional beings. If it happens to someone in our day and age, it's not desirable, because the human being has not yet fully developed, as it were. The endocrine system is that which issues the crucial hormones. It is responsible for a complete, complete, even realization of who you are on the level of your individuality. Individuality cannot be slaughtered unless individuality reached its full blossom. This is one of the things also very important to understand. This many teachings require, almost like teachers ask an aspirant to jump off the cliff that he or she will land in Brahman. That's not always the case. You know, you can actually f f float in a, in a black void for a few incarnations if, you know, you know, if, you're, if, if that whole understanding of who you are on the level of your Atma, on the level of who you are, on the level of your soul. This is why uh, a more integral teachings are required today. Because there are, there are, it's a chain reaction. There is a lot of awakening happening. Awakening in terms of the transmission of grace and awakenings that are like, Jack just said, like people pop out out of the blue. So this is um, something that people forget that Ramana had to pay a heavy price with his body because of his early awakening. It is always swept under the carpet. 
because Ramana is presented as this very, very icono like iconography of non-duality. You know, it's like a new icon, an apostle. But we need to face all the ramifications of what enlightenment is. All, even on a practical level, because as Maharishi Mahesh Yogi said, this teaching has to be readjusted to each and every generation. It cannot be otherwise. We cannot apply what was relevant thousand years ago, even hundred, even fifty years ago, to a rapidly evolving world, because that is in the nature of consciousness itself. I just wanted to quickly interject and then these two will talk more, but this may seem prudish or, or antiquated or controversial, but this he, thing he mentioned about the endocrine system developing up until the age of 24, that's why in the Indian tradition um, celibacy was advocated until the age of 24 or 5 or so. Uh, one would maintain celibacy and then get married if they wish to do so at that age because it allowed the, the system, the endocrine system, to develop and reach its full strength and potency before entering into a more worldly life. As I understand it, the, the what again can you can you say the title of our um, of our forum? Because uh, hu human body, divine presence. presence. Human body, divine presence. And for me, this speaks to something that I find very interesting. And what Igor just said about each generation has to figure out a new way to embody this wisdom to embody this realization and I think not only each generation but each culture embodies it differently and I think a lot in this sort of non-dual spiritual scene there's a real tendency to um, dismiss our own traditions our western traditions and say the western traditions are all wet you know Christianity Judaism all wet. There's no awakened people in that. They're just theologically and dogmatically bound and so on and so forth. And there's some truth to that. I mean, there are there are some there's certainly a dark underbelly to to western spirituality. But I've got news for you. There's a dark underbelly to to any spirituality. Uh, Hindu spirituality, Buddhist spirituality, contrary to popular western culture in the especially the new age kind of non-dual scene is not perfect there are weak points in it there are strong points in it in western spirituality there are weak points there are strong points and there are individuals in any tradition that somehow penetrate into the depths of, of this reality that we're trying all trying to point to that conferences like this that spiritual teachers are all trying to kind of point us toward, um, hopefully also living that, embodying that, and that points in its own way. And I, I really feel that in the West especially, in the East, the cosmology, the ontology, those are kind of big flung words, but the cosmology meaning the understanding of the phenomenal universe, the cosmos, the understanding of the very nature of being itself, of what it means to be a human being in this world are different in the West than they are in the East. And as they both have their strong and weak points, I think they both have something very interesting and, and very valuable to bring to the table, and they both have things that would probably be better left uh, on the ground and not brought to the table. And um, 
I really think that this idea, uh, and I'll just say it, and it might be a kind of non-dual heresy, but I've, you know, I've already been accused of being a heretic in the Western Christian tradition, so I might as well go, go for it and, and be declared a heretic in every tradition, and, and then I'll really feel like I've accomplished something. So, here we go. Um, I think this kind of thing that you hear a lot in this scene, uh, that the body is utterly unreal, that it has absolutely no value, that the world is completely unreal, has absolutely no value, is not viable for Western people. Or Eastern. For that and I'm not even sure it's viable for Eastern. And if you look at Eastern culture... A lot of those ideas is what created things like a caste system, uh, what created people being in poverty and staying in poverty because they felt it was their karma, their destiny, and also the world's just illusion anyway, so who gives a damn? You know, <laughs> kind of like, okay, it's all illusion anyway, so I just kind of accept this is my illusion. <laughs> Your illusion is to be rich, so wonderful. I think that we have to really look at who we are as human beings and what resonates with us and, and the archetypes also that resonate with us. You know, we weren't raised, none of us, or maybe, maybe some of us, maybe somebody here, it's dark, I can't really see too well, but, you know, most of us, I presume, are Western people, uh, people from uh, Europe or the U.S., we have our own culture, we have our own archetypes, and we have our own people who have realized this reality. And maybe it wouldn't be a bad idea for us to look at a few of them and, and see them as models. You know, they were raised in, a, in at least a somewhat similar culture, maybe a different time, but a lot of the same sort of philosophical, cosmological, ontological understandings that we were. So rather than look to a complete other culture, we can learn from that, we can grow from that, we can have very valuable interactions with that, and I'm not saying drop it, but I'm saying let's integrate both things, and I think our understanding of things like the body, I, and I think it's important to say also, you cannot separate the body and mind, you know? The body and the mind are really, really integrated. Uh, the, bo the body affects the mind, and the mind affects the body. And even modern science, modern medical science, will tell you that there's a definite body-mind connection, isn't there? And I think that when we look at this uh, notion, and hopefully the reality, of enlightenment or awakening or breakthrough, spiritual clarity or whatever, um, we would have to say that there must be some effect on a human body that embodies that. And whether we like it or not, as human beings, there's bodies here. <laughs> they may be temporary, they may be on an absolute level, even illusory. But right now, there's a bunch of bodies sitting around here, breathing and looking and hearing and seeing and tasting and touching. And to just say it's all just a bunch of bull and it's all illusion, I don't know about you, but that's not very satisfying to me. I feel like, well, if it's just all illusion, then why is it appearing? If there's not something to it. And I think that what we're, the subject that we're kind of um, touching on is what is the effect on the body of the, of the embodiment of this wisdom, of this knowledge. And as Igor and um, 
and Jack were pointing out, there, there, there definitely are. You were talking about people getting a sudden jolt and it kind of affecting them in a dramatic way. And Igor was talking about also um, running across people like that. And I think that, you know, there's a, there's a whole set of conditioning that happens that's, that's interconnected between body and mind. And I think in times past, both in Eastern culture and in Western culture, there was a tendency for people to put themselves under a spiritual discipline, a spiritual teacher, and do a lot of preliminary practices that involved ethical, um, uh, meditational, and, um, and then kind of wisdom strands. Of, in other words, there was like an ethical training where you tried to, to kind of live a moral life, not live a life of non-harming in one way or another. There was a, a meditational training, and there was often a communal training of living with others in a spiritual community. And a lot of purification and groundwork was laid there, a lot of purification of the body-mind kind of um, organism, you could say, happened in that. And it actually created, you could say, a, a vehicle, a container to contain this clarity, this wisdom, this consciousness, the full kind of um, expression of this consciousness. And I think that's a kind of important point. And now we've got people who just sort of happen upon this with laying no groundwork. So it's kind of like trying to build a house with no foundation. You know, to go back and build a foundation after the house structure is up is a little challenging. So I think maybe we could learn something. My sense is, like coming from the monastic tradition I did, there was a definite, definite emphasis on doing your basic homework. It's like when you learn a language. You, what do you do when you learn Spanish? You take Spanish one, you know, and hola, hola, me, me amo Francis. <laughs> you know, whatever. I, I don't remember much Spanish. I should have done it in French. But anyway, uh, so you got that. Spanish 1, you learn some grammar, you get some things under your belt, then you go to Spanish 2, and then you get a little more fluent, you do more dialogues, then you go to Spanish 3. So I think we might look at that paradigm of creating a foundation, and especially those of us who teach, I know in my own teaching and working with people, I often say, you know, it's good to have a kind of moral foundation, an ethical, I know that's a bad word, in these circles. But you know what? It matters how we treat others, how we treat ourselves. It creates, it purifies this body-mind. And if we don't do it before an awakening, we might have an awakening, and I see this a lot, people get an absolute view, and then they get stuck there. And they dismiss the phenomenal world, they dismiss the body. And I'm not saying that all that stuff is true on an absolute level, but I'm saying that if there's an integrated, an integration of wisdom and awakening, then we come to understand that all that stuff that's phenomenal and relative and illusory on one level and temporary is also, in a certain sense, included in that. Because that absolute level is so huge and vast, it excludes nothing. It contains everything. I'm going on too long. No. But I think I made a few points, and I'm just going to leave it there, and then we'll continue the discussion. When you woke up, when you were in, you were very supported in your situation. So did yes. you feel anything physically? Did you have anything? Yes. Did you want to share? I mean, was it, was it intense? How did you support yourself? 
I was in a monastery, so I was supported, and I spent six months basically sitting in my room, blissed out, you know, and, and, and really had a lot of adjustment in the body, but like you say, I was in a supportive environment. Also, I had done a lot of practice before that that involved a lot of purification of body-mind. So that then the body mind is a, is a kind of more it's 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 um what's the word? What did it feel like? I mean, what what did were you spaced out? Were you? I wouldn't say I was spaced out, but I was very see. Like I said today in the talk, there's a kind of uh, tendency among human beings that are uh, in in a state of ignorance, which all of us more or less are at some point early on, that we're we're completely focused on the relative. We're completely focused on the phenomenal world, on this body-mind and this story of who we are, this character, as Jack said, we're really convinced that that's absolutely real. And that's all there is. And for most people walking around the planet, in case you hadn't noticed, that's where they're at. This is all there is. All that matters is getting a good job, having a good spouse, raising children, having your career, living a life, doing all these physical kind of phenomenal things. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's kind of the way it goes for most people for a while. Then sometimes some people, if they're really lucky and have the grace, realize this, this level of pure consciousness, of absolute awareness. And they say, oh, I made a mistake. I wasn't. I'm not this body-mind, and this whole phenomenal world isn't really ultimately real. What's real is this absolute consciousness, this awareness. And then for some, there can be a tendency to say, that's real, this is unreal. And now I'm really non-dual because I believe that's real and this is unreal. And what's that sound like? Real, unreal. One, two. Dual, right? It's dual on a more spiritual level, but it's still duality, isn't it? It's dividing up real, unreal. Absolute relative. And I think what happens is that pendulum swings from thinking relative is it, that's the name of the game, to thinking absolute is it, that's the name of the game, to realizing that the absolute is appearing and disappearing in all these billions of forms. And so the relative and the absolute are not two. It's, they're two sides of one coin of reality. One's temporary, illusory in a certain way. One's permanent, eternal. But you can't separate them, just like you can't separate two sides of a coin. And now I'm going to shut up because I've just gone way too long, and there's other people here. So. What's a good idea is to uh, develop a habit of maintaining a clear mind and maintaining a clear body in whatever way that makes sense to you, whatever maintains well-being in the body and a clear, you know, an ability to kind of, to be honest with yourself, to see what's going on. Because post-awakening, that motivation of, that you have when you're on a spiritual path, that motivation is gone 
it's gone. So if things are built in as a habit, do you know what? The habits remain. That's exactly yeah. what the, I'm The habits too. stay, whether the habit Obviously. is going to bed early or feeling sick if you have more than two beers. or The habits stay. The yep. sensitivities grow <laughs> because the body is finer. The but, yeah, yeah. So if you can develop a pattern of something on the spiritual path, that's great. Now, for the, for the Jack character, there was years of meditation and it stopped totally. Totally. There's no meditation at all. It doesn't happen at all. Chanting happened for a bit and then that died as well. And months, months, the last retreat probably. Um, so, so even some habits will die off. But starting new habits, I don't know how to do that. Because, there's, because post-awakening, it's, like, it's just responsive. Because there's no, you, you don't have the, the idea that you can improve something or you can... You, you don't have any of those ideas running. So, so just responding to what is, to what is present, to what is presented, that becomes your MO. So if you don't have a habit of being really self-honest about not hiding from your stuff or, you know, kidding yourself about, you know, ah, yeah, I know I shouldn't smoke, but something tiny like smoking, you know, I know I shouldn't do that because it's not good for me. It's like, just get over that, get over that, support your beautiful body, you know, support a clean, healthy mind. If you can get that into your system, pre-awakening, man, I'll tell you, it makes the integration faster, smoother. It would definitely will help as life goes on. Definitely helps. That's really good. Get into point that makes yeah. time to make it. Much okay. quicker. Yes. <laughs> well, the way I've heard it, there's a couple of different models of how this energetic stuff operates. Uh, one is up through the chakras, up to the crown chakra, and then there's another model which is sort of down from the, you might say, illuminate, initial illumination, down into the body, to the heart center, and then to the hara center. And I wondered if and there may be some other models that I don't even know about. Well, these are not models. And um, shall I respond? Yeah, you're the chakra yes. expert. So <laughs> 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 well, funny enough, I, I kind of like uh, give it a spin because I, I did say on several occasions already that I do not actually support from direct, first-hand experience the diagrams that you buy in most New Age books. It actually doesn't work like that. I feel very often when conversation goes around this whole subject, it is much more complex and less linear. Awakening is never linear. All these books could tell you, it awakens down there and just goes up under a nice, nice kind of like a Deva Primal music <laughs> until it reaches Sahasrara and, and then this like a kind of flower starts to fall on the, you know, like the... Heavenly flowers, you know, heavenly kind of, you know. Okay. Like in Indian marriages, they throw the petals of roses, you know. What does we go be Krishna? Yeah, it doesn't work like that, and it doesn't work like that working with people. What amazes me is that there are patterns, distinctive patterns, right, which allowed, allowed certain traditions. In my knowledge, that most explicit tradition a tantric tradition, which actually tantra is all about the body, because what tantra did, as opposed to classical Advaita Vedanta, Advaita negated, spat out the universe. Tantra instead 
taken that which is supposed to be denied with all its limitations, with all its imperfections, and declare that everything you can find in the outer universe you can find in this body. So let's enter Brahman or let's, be, you know, like enter the Absolute through this vehicle. So this is a radical approach, a radically different approach already. Now, before I reply to that, what you just voiced, in terms of the ascent versus descent, which is very interesting, I want to kind of like uh, go back to what Francis was just saying and Jack poignantly pointed out about the importance of maintaining, maintaining a practice which prepares this instrumentality for the actual act of awakening. And awakening is the portal, it's the beginning. So really preparing, preparing something to start the real work. And this is why I wanted to take it where Francis left and Jackie in terms of another more biological perspective. That is, paradoxically, it is when vital force waken, awakens because that consciousness is inseparable from vital force. Consciousness, consciousness, dwells in this body as the vital force. Various traditions call it under various names. When that is awakened to itself, what it does, it actually, actually creates a profound steer in the house. It literally, literally, it's like imagine the pond, which is clear water and lotuses and very sweet, suddenly a bolt of like electricity hit that pond. All the mud is kind of like brought to the surface. The real awakening, the more profound awakening, the more stuff comes to the surface. And this is what all people report. Everyone who has ever undergone the awakening know that the more there was that we haven't had the chance to deal with, the more it will be brought to our face, to, to literally to deal with. And another thing, another really, really paradoxical uh, thing about awakening is that the, in pre-awakening, a lot of things are covered nicely. It's always like bubbling, like, I've sat in meditation for many years as well, and it's like all nice and sweet, all nice and sweet. You come out into activity until you expand, like, and the time to recharge the batteries. All this is kind of like, you know, you, you glide through a lot of what you do, but when awakening happens... The stuff comes out out of your mouth that you never know, knew existed. The emotions, the feelings that come out of, out of you, you never knew existed. So this is the importance of actually addressing this. Some teachers call it a shadow. Because when light is being introduced, shadows are long. When sun is rising, before the sun reaches its zenith, the shadows are you know, like, long and dark shadows. This is a kind of like another side of awakening which is rarely addressed. Because this is when that, what has been sitting there, not showing its ugly face, is often gains the momentum because by very nature of that process. And I will give a little kind of like a footnote. Since the vital force circulates in the body inside the spinal column, and this is where it circulates as cerebrospinal fluid. Deep within that spinal column, all the three relative states of consciousness are literally, literally rotating frequencies around the transcendent. The waking, the dreaming, and the deep sleep states of consciousness are all hidden 
inside that spinal column. Each state of consciousness is associated with a particular, let's say, body. The waking state of consciousness is associated with physical body. Why? Because this is when the acuity of the senses and the mind are at its peak, at its maximum. The dreaming state of consciousness is associated with the astral body or the light body that I've mentioned earlier. And the deep sleep state of consciousness is associated with the karmic body. This is why we don't know what is there because it's, it's a blank, it's like a pitch black. Deep sleep, we don't experience nothing, most of us, when, until we transcend that state of consciousness. So what happens is that when in awakening from biological perspective, this I want you to understand, from the biological perspective, and we are biological species, it doesn't matter how awakening will take place, it will always have to move on the body as cerebrospinal fluid. This, all these bodies are getting reactivated and start to rotate at a much higher frequency. In fact, some scriptures say that consciousness moves inside that spinal column, which is thinner than the, spy, than the, the spider's web. Yes. That consciousness moves in the light, in the speed of light inside. Speed and often, often, yeah, this is like something very fascinating. You know, this is literally consciousness reverses itself. It's like the whole process of reverse, reverse starts from there. But what interests us here in this particular discussion that we're having is that we often experience more, more, than we were prepared to experience. And dramatic awakenings are full of examples when karma is being speed up. That what we ought to experience will be brought, brought to the surface. So all this, all this is like an indication that this is why those traditions that really safeguarded this knowledge and that knowledge was passed uninterruptedly, they knew how important it is to prepare the vehicle, to prepare the body. It is known, for example, that in certain traditions, if the perceptor was detecting that, the, let's say, those who were gathered around are not ready, he will not necessarily do anything to awaken that being because it's not the time. Some other work needs to be done. And that other work meant to actually help to develop that personality fully with the help of what Francis has mentioned as all this you know, internal and external code of, code of conduct the selfless service, you know, the karma the essence of karma yoga, yamas and you know, yamas. yamas and yamas, you know, this is the, like, the, the, you know, the code of like, of, of let's say like uh, relation, the, exactly the foundational the foundational uh, cornstones on which one can literally build because when it starts to shake you know, so it can withstand. And this is what I want you to also, like, because it was very important what Francis has said earlier in terms of these qualities when awakening takes place, as Jack then said, it's much harder to work on when it's actually in the progress. Because you're, it's like everything is speed up. Everything is in a much, happens in a much faster uh, pace. Right. 
Kashmir Shaivism. Can you discuss that a little bit because it relates here? A sure, of course, yes. Of this, Kashmir Shaivism is basically Rabindranath Tagore in the beginning of the 20th century said that Kashmir Shaivism is the encapsulation of everything what best what happened in Indian subcontinent for the last several thousand of years. And Kashmir Shaivism, it's the the so-called religion of householder. In fact, all Kashmir Shaiva teachers were all family members. It was required to fully, to fully integrate the state of one's enlightenment was checked, literally was checked against the rocks of householder's life. Remember like Maharishi said that like when the question was asked, are all these yogis, you know, like he said like some of them when they step down, they've realized that their realization was crushed when they were intermingled in life, when they started to kind of like when they tested their life, their state of freedom against the requirements of life, many of them have came to the realization that actually it was not stabilized yeah. because they were in a relationship. It's very sweet to sit alone next to the nice little waterfall and somebody will bring you food, somebody nice cooked dal, chapati and rice because you are, you are Brahman. In India, it's sacred. He also said yeah. that uh, sometimes, I don't know how he would have known this, but that at the time of death, many yogis who thought they were liberated discovered that they That's another, aren't. yes, exactly. This is another because there is... It's like you can be in that beatific state but that's not necessarily a fully integrated state of enlightenment. And Kashmir Shaiva tradition is precisely the tradition which is very important in, in it's not my view, I'm only lauding what much, much greater beings have said before me. It came, it was preserved, it's like a last best kept secret of India. Literally, it's the last best kept secret. Because Kashmir Shaivism operates on a very different uh, operates with very different notions. The notion of Maya is not viewed as an illusion. There is no such thing in Kashmir Shaivism as an illusion as opposed to, let's say, the, that very famous postulate, which is, by the way, for some reason uh, assi ascribed to Ramana Maharshi. It was actually uttered by Adi Shankara in the 8th century. The world is unreal. Mm. Only Brahman is real. Brahman is the world. But he never elaborated on the relationship between Brahman and the world. The greatest, the greatest sage who is actually, actually gave the notion of Advaita Vedanta. If you go before Adi Shankara, you would not find any such term. He is the one who brought Advaita Vedanta, as we know it today. The classical Indian realization all falls within that category. And I dare to say, most of the teachers of Advaita Vedanta simply regurgitating the same postulates and the same. If you read Viveka Chudamani or Brahma Sutras of Adi Shankara, you will, you will never need to go to any satsangs anymore. Everything is said there with crystal clarity. The whole world, Viveka Chudamani, discerning sort of discrimination. That's what that means. However, however, the Kashmir Shaivism <coughs> completely came with another perspective. That Instead of immutable Brahman, there was, you know, the, the pure awareness, Shiva, manifests itself as Shakti. And Shakti is as real as Shiva because Shakti is Shiva. It's just that a play of consciousness where Shiva willingly undergoes that transformation 
to be in every fiber of existence, in every iota, in every particle, or whatever you call it, quark, or what have you. There's nothing but Shiva. This is what Kashmir Shaiva teaches, uh, uh, sutras and Kashmir Shaiva um, real philosophy teaches, the doctrines, and there are many doctrines. And the one that I particularly resonate is known as the doctrine of Spanda, the doctrine of vibration. You know, the continuous expansion and con contraction of consciousness which can be directly perceived at the heart level, of which many, many mystics and saints of various traditions have spoken within the Christian tradition, within the Sufi tradition, within the Kabbalah tradition, and within many other traditions. So the Kashmir Shaivism is like that, the platform is, you know, the, the household the platform is that you have to be in a, in a grid of life in the grid of life, it's a requirement. Like Francis said, stuck, being stuck in the absolute, it's not even on the agenda. You know the famous saying that's attributed to Ram Das. He said, if you think you're so enlightened, go and stay with your parents for a week. For the weekend. For the weekend. Can I get back to the strengthening the light body for a moment? Yeah. I just can quickly say that it's known as ascent and descent. This could happen simultaneously, as it happened in my case, and as it happened with some people that I'm in direct contact, when actually the descent of that energy, known as descent of grace, ignites the awakening at the lower end of the spectrum, which facilitates the consequent ascent. But the actual... Awakening could happen in any energy center. It could happen at the lower center, like known as the classically known as Muladhara. It could happen in the gap, which actually always happens, most often happens in the gap. But then, then it is experienced lower down. It could happen in the heart. If one's heart is pure and open, that's most likely that's where the awakening will take place. Awakening could happen on the heart level. And that is one of the most, let's say, painful awakenings because one is rendered open completely, wide open. But there is a lot of work needs to be done because the awakening has to incorporate the entire, the entire body on a subtle level. But the entire body. When they happen, particular centers first off experience bliss as bliss. You know, uh, say a some, chakra opens up. Some, some awakenings. Some awake, well, awakening at the heart level does not necessarily mean that the heart chakra is going to be fully activated. Because what it happens most likely, it's where it awakens, but since the work needs to be done there, that's where the impulse, the impulse really goes right away. So very often, those who have experienced the heart awakening, they immediately encounter a lot of physical problems down there on a gut level, on you know, the lower level, which could relate to the fire center, to the water center, to the earth center. Awakening cannot proceed up because up until all this territory is being covered, it cannot proceed. It's like in the same way with the descent. By the way, I've heard somewhere that the real ideal awakening from the point of view of Christian perspective was considered to be the, the descent because it's less painful, it's less, let's say, associated with the physiological drama. That is what Shriya Rabinda spoke a lot about. He was, you know, initiating and speaking a lot about that 
integral process of self-realization where the grace, literally the grace, the Shiva's grace or the grace of pure awareness is invited, descends down because it's less painful. It's, it's like literally if it descends down, it opens the body in, the, in a very beatific, in a very gentle way. The lower yogic awakening is often much faster, much more violent, and not necessarily the safer. <coughs> so this is in terms of, you know, it could coincide, it could be one or the other, it could be both at the same time. One can trigger the other. And there's also the side effect of uh, kriyas, where people are voluntary movements. Is that part of that uh, process? Every awakening, every awakening is accompanied by kriyas. Kriyas could be physical, emotional, mental, anything that happens involuntary. You can sit and shake, you can have unexpected emotions that flood you. People who awaken, they cry for no reason, they laugh for no reason, and it's normal. That's what Kriyas are. Francis you know, says his start... awakening wasn't accompanied by Kriyas. Well, the Kriyas may not be aware, uh, accompanied by the physical Kriyas, but there will be emotional Kriyas, psychological Kriyas, mental Kriyas. It just doesn't, you don't have to call it. What do you mean when you say Kriya? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really up on these okay. terms. Okay, well, the, because the, the gentleman... I thought it was an involuntary movement or something. That's what I always thought. But yes, I but it's not necessarily bound to physical movements. The experience of Christian mystics, of sudden flood of love, it's oh, a Kriya. Oh, sure, okay. You know, sudden, like, emotion overtaken. You know, like, I still have that. Yeah, so, <laughs> so you still have Kriyas. Mudras, you know, like, all these, like, uh, sudden, like, facial, like, sometimes... You can sit and smile for no reason, yeah. and you're not funny. It's just you. It's a mudra. When I first started having him, it was like I would actually. I was sitting in my friend's living room, I remember, and nobody was there, and I my face ball, it went into like these demonic things and Grimacing, all, yeah. all kinds of strange things. I knew kind of what was going on, so it didn't freak me out. And I was driving an ice cream truck at the time. Uh, not that, not you scared that, all the children. Not, not that moment, but during the day, I was driving an ice cream truck, and you know, my head was kind of going like this all the time. And as long as I was active, it wouldn't do it. But if I stopped to a stop sign or something, my head would start going. You know, this is very interesting because when I was 13 years old, I remember this just came back to my memory. I'd completely forgotten it, but I had this with the doctor. So my mom took me to the doctor, and he said it's a nervous tick. And I was going like this all the time with my shoulders. Oh. And I couldn't figure out what that was. But actually, that also did coincide with a time in my life when there was a real kind of a heart sort of awakening of devotion, of a lot of devotion. And now I'm, I'm kind of like interested in wondering, was it related to that in some way? And I, of course, I didn't even think of any kind of connection there Good at the is. time. But that's even, interesting. Even when the body jerked off, in space, that's a kriya, mm -hmm. an involuntary motion. Kriya means movement. Yeah. Really, the meaning of the word kriya, movement. And it could happen on the most subtlest level. So it's know, like this spiritual sort of energy exactly. displaces things, well, like you could say. Or it's like in order to pick up this glass, very quick electrical response, right? Mm -hmm. I'm thirsty, I'm going to quench myself, and this whole process is in motion. So that is not involuntary. It's voluntarily. Yeah. It's been, the signal has been sent to the brain. It kind of kicks in a whole exactly. chain reaction. chain reaction. What Kriya is, is that it's completely automotive. It has no purpose other than... A response, kind of. It allows prana to move in the body in the way it does and in the way it wants to, to purify that body. All Kriyas are purificatory. All of them. Sorry to interrupt. Does that include sounds that... 
Yeah. Projected out. It could, sure. It almost like it could sound like you have Tourette's roaring, or like roaring like a lion. Yeah. You know this like barking vocal like sound. Yeah. Barking I have could be. Language that comes out of me that sounds like tongues or some kind of clicking. People speak in tangos. Yes. You oh, is that a Korean? Reside. Speaking in tongues. Yes. I did also, that. Yes. Yeah. There you go. There I go. So I have a clear. <laughs> Sorry, I did interrupt you earlier, but I just it, That's okay. It would be really helpful if we could go back to the basics when you said strengthening the light body, because we just kind of breezed over the whole principle of the topic. And basically, the reason why I'm asking is because I found that you can go through the chakra system, you can go and do yoga, pranayama, kundalini techniques, ali mudras, and whatnot. But there's a big, there's a blurry line between what's sufficient to strengthen pranamaya kosha and what's actually forcefully raising kundalini. And yes. what I found is that through psychological transformation alone, kundalini is rising when it's meant to rise. And, and to push is, is not so harmonious compared to just the purification process alone. Also, I understand that pranayama and yoga is meant to prepare the body for meditation. But once you've actually done so for a number of years and you feel comfortable with meditating, is not spanda itself, is not that sacred tremor or the prana that's coming through meditation, the grace alone, anyway, continuing to purify the structure. And so the reason why I'm asking is because I would love to know a more clear line between you know, what's purifying the light body and then what's unnecessary because we live in a society of time now. This, like, time is precious. I don't want to waste time doing pranayama when I could be meditating. Yes, because a very good question. I personally belong and believe in spontaneous path when it comes to the spiritual practice and reaping the fruits and the benefits. In a sense, so that not to contradict to what has been said earlier, I personally believe that meditation when it's done properly, it no, it it should happen spontaneously. But before it does, before it does, an amount of discipline is required, frequency is required, and a time spent in meditation is required. Because what happens is that I've been in many yogic ashrams in my early years, especially in my early thirties. And I was already a proficient yoga instructor. I could have taught yoga in the, uh, in the 90s when yoga was sweeping across the United Kingdom. In America, there was already 12 million yogi, so to speak, practicing. But even though at that age, I felt this is not real yoga, this is not a real uh, essence of yoga. And a lot of these pranayama practices, and I actually witnessed, there were some undesirable effects, to put it mildly. Because pranayama is one of the most direct way of manipulating consciousness on this level of physiology. Why? Because pranamaya kosha, literally that which connects and acts as an intermediary between all other koshas, but specifically between the manamaya, that of the body of the mind, and that of the anamaya, the body of made of cells. Koshas means sheaths, by the yeah. way, if you don't Like know. in a Russian doll. Yeah, sort of one like, within the other, there are said the to be a number of them. So that when pranayama is done voluntarily, forcibly, it literally we move the prana where it's not ready to go. The body itself is not ready to go. The mind is not ready to, ready to go there. The, but prana forces it. Which isn't so to say that, is, you sh that a little gentle pranayama no, for, for a few minutes wouldn't be fine. But if you're going to sit down and do some intense thing for a couple of hours, you can really get in trouble. And, and that's never advocated except under the guidance of somebody who really knows what they're doing. 
But most of the, like, let's say, this Kundalini Yoga, that's what they do. They do real Kapalabhati, which is a shining skull. Mm-hmm. Kapalabhati is a shining skull. It's a very dangerous pranayama. You work with diaphragm. Anuloma Viloma is harmless. It's just like literally balancing breath, right? But all these forms of Kapalabhati, and there are many of them, you know, they're different. You know, there's Pastrika. All this really ideally should happen by itself, and it does when awakening takes place. How many have experienced that, that spontaneously some kind of pranayama yeah, thing starts happening, yeah. some fast breathing? Jerking, or... Not a smooth breath, but a jerking breath. Yeah. Of, where did that come from? Or, or you can the... even find yourself sitting yeah. there going... Yeah, no, no, yeah. Yeah, all, yeah. all of a sudden... Automatically. Yeah. Yeah. That is involuntary pranayama. Yeah, no, that's what's happening. Yeah. And I, okay, I just go with it. And the about, best... about a year or so. And relaxing into it is very important. You know, sometimes... Oh, it's, it's very yeah. actual. Sometimes I don't even notice it. I just want to one footnote, very important footnote, because these questions kept coming back to me over years. There's one pranayama that freaks people out, basically, when the breath is being arrested. When you suddenly, in that state, you no longer breathe, but not... When the breath subsides, it's a big difference. When breath subsides gently and comes to the point of suspension, it's a very different ball game. That is the most desirable, in a sense, because that is a very subtle breathing still goes on. And you know that because your tummy gently moves up and down, ever so gently. But you don't feel the air, you don't even hear. If you sit in a very quiet room, you wouldn't be able to hear your own breathing. This is a supreme pranayama. The most desirable. This is the supreme. It's the king of all pranayamas. Literally in that state, left and right hemispheres of the brain, sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems come and unity is given. Direct unity. Samadhi is easy. But there is another one which is experienced literally on the inhalation or exhalation when suddenly you're gasping and you feel as if you cannot breathe. And it's involuntary. It's not you doing that. And I know people who freaked out and even been taken forcibly out, like one husband took his wife. When she was there, she was gasping and he started beating her. They were both meditating on the cheeks to wake her up. But that is a kumbhaka. This is known as, kumbhaka is a pot. pot. Kumbhaka is that very, very specific yogic practice which actually should not be done again, like unless it's been supervised by an adept. But when it happens spontaneously, I often advise people and often say this is a very important point in your spiritual practice because if you have overcome the fear, after a certain time, you can remain completely in that state and you will experience your first proper nirvikalpa samadhi, even if for, let's say, one or two minutes only. Because most meditators experience samadhi with the kalpa, samadhi with some kind of awareness. But the Nirvikalpa Samadhi of which John Hagelin spoke today eloquently in his presentation, the Nirvikalpa Samadhi is that Samadhi which is an interrupted state. This is a, a ground of consciousness. This is where we experience ourselves of who we are. And I just wanted to make it as a footnote. So if, if that happens to any of you on inhalation or inhalation, and the suddenly, as a meditator, you suddenly feel you're gasping for air, but it doesn't breathe, it's not to be afraid. The more you relax to it, the more you realize actually you don't need to breathe. And this, what happens is that there's a very profound process. The breathing is required for giving oxygen to the brain, for the healthy functioning of the brain. But what happens in these spontaneous kumbakas is that the electrical impulse in the brain happens due to the complete fusion. So it doesn't need to be fed with oxygen. And yogis realize that. They discover that through the direct practice. And so they desire. For yogi, it's like a 
it's like Christmas or whatever. You know, it's like <laughs> Kumbhaka happened on its own. It means the fruit of yoga is already knocking on the door. You know, so that's the footnote in terms of the of this because you asked about pranayama, and I advocate the spontaneous pranayamas more than induced ones. So I would increase time in meditation because it's bound to come. And people, you know, in meditation, sometimes like what Rick mentioned earlier, and the gentleman over there, you know. And you start to breathe. Just allow that. Allow. I use. I breathed for two years. There was no meditation. I just breathed for two years. Nothing. Like I would sit down with people at the dinner party and closing my eyes to say grace, and I start breathing, and everyone thinks, "What's wrong with this guy?" <laughs> because that's that builds the pranic sheet, by the way. Prepares the body, the light body. So you say you would just meditate and allow pranayama to come spontaneously. What other sort of preliminary practices would you recommend to strengthen the light body? Obviously, diet, general exercise, but do you recommend chakra-based yoga? I would say that not to say that easy, like obviously diet. Because when we say obviously diet, we often like, diet is crucial. It's crucial in, in today we live. 70% of our prana today derived from our food. Because it's the age, day and age we live in. Very little prana comes from breathing. And a minute amount of prana comes directly through the fountainel of the head. So most of our prana comes from food. That's why we're bound to eat so much. Our age now, the reason why we eat so much is precisely because of that. Do you we're see? not getting enough prana. Exactly. We have to replenish that prana constantly. Francis was suggesting that maybe the, the whole idea of light body or subtle body might not be understood. Probably Igor can explain it better, but let me just take a quick crack and then give it to you. And, th and that is that there's so many strata of creation. There's the gross and, and then subtler and subtler and subtler levels of creation, just as, again, Hagelin was explaining in terms of his physics thing. But we have a body, you know, which is not flesh and blood, which is made of subtle matter, subtle body. I believe that's what you mean by it when you say light body. I'm talking about the specific second layer called pranamaya kosha, uh -huh. composed specifically of the prana of the light, mm -hmm. out of the five main bodies. Sometimes. Okay, seven. well you understand better than I do. Yes, the, the lady has very clear understanding, yeah, yeah. and I'm sure if someone is lost, like you have to ask the questions to that. So these terms are put in the context of your tradition or your understanding, because this is very important to understand. It's not that light body is some kind of uh, imaginative thing that one person have it and another no. It's just like we have skeleton where all the muscles are being assembled and then we have, just like this physical body has seven tissues. In Ayurveda, they're distinctively, each one is given a name. Each tissue is given a name. The plasma, the blood, the fat, the muscle, the bone, the marrow, and that which is inside the bone marrow, the immunological substance, which is manifesting in male as in his might, you know, in a female as a reproductive fluid. Just as this physical body is made of different tissues, in the same way, the light body is made out of light and sound, as simple as that. It's a light sound structure. That light sound structure has energetic vortexes, which are actually situated in exact proximity to most important glands in the body. And this is where the connection between the light body and the physical body is being made. And the importance of that in awakening, and what is awakening, what Rick said earlier in terms of the, even on a cellular level, there have to be changes. And it's precisely what happens, is that in awakening, 
the physiology, the endocrine system undergoes a tremendous transformation. Because all this, all this physiology undergoes through a tremendous transformation precisely because light body starts to vibrate with much higher frequency. And because it vibrates with much higher frequency, it allows much more light, you know, to absorb much more light of pure consciousness, pure awareness. That in itself facilitates the rekindling of important glands in the body. Those glands that perhaps prior to that were dormant or went dormant, calcified. Thyroid glide, for instance, it's the gland which facilitates the growth and it takes over at the age of puberty. And because of that development, it is often in 99% of all the cases at the expense of the calcification of pineal and pituitary gland. So the, in other dimension of tantric practices, in that case every spiritual practice, is rekindling of these crucial glands so that they can issue the qualitatively new hormones back into the body. When I did this, my first interview with um, Conscious TV, Renata Maknei took only one line from whatever she found it, something I said on, on some occasion. And she really, really resonated with that and she brought it to, that, to our interview. And that quote she brought, I don't know where she found it, but it was basically, enlightened one is not so and so. It's the one whose nervous system is no longer swept by the chemical storms inside the body. Do you understand the, the significance of that? Because really our psychological, emotional reactions are issued and really supported by that gut and brain spontaneous reaction. And up until that undergoes a qualitative change, nothing has changed in us. doesn't matter how powerful was awakening. Can I speak from another perspective? Sure. Yeah, okay. of course. To me, it seems like there's one human drama, which is not wanting the experience we're having. That's it. It's not, not, not in wanting the experience, the experience we're having. We're having. Resistance, Resistance to the field of information we find ourselves in. But not even the field of information, our perception of the field. There's awareness, and then there's this field of information, and then there's the habits of attention. And with the habit of attention, the habit of attention produces both a sense that we have of ourselves and the sense of the universe. So the habit of attention that we have, if you look where it comes from, it, it's inherited, you could say, from conditioning from your culture, from what happened to the body in your mom's womb and in the early years, way before there was discrimination. And so there's a habit of attention that is getting feedback for itself because when it's dualistic, it treats people as objects so that often gets a feedback of being treated as an object itself. We experience a lot of different difficulties just living. And then we try and deal with the difficulties at the level of the difficulty. But actually the difficulty is coming from a habit of attention, which is usually unconscious. There's no bad intention. It's just a habit that focuses in a way that invites a certain feedback and creates a loop, you could say, or pain ping-pong, you know, because it goes backwards and forwards. Pain ping-pong? Pain ping-pong, yeah. <laughs> because ultimately, if you look, all we have to give it ourselves and the world and each, and each other is our attention. That's the currency, yeah? Mm -hmm. And the, the way a mom or the, the, the quality of attention that happens in any group determines actually we're relational. We, we live in the field of each other's attention. How people see us, that affects all of us. When I went to see Papaji in India, he would always joke about meditation because he's saying, you know, if you're going to meditate for even 18 hours, 
you've already tied your mind outside of meditation. So he would say, what use is that? Once someone came to Ramana Maharishi and said, look, there's a guy who's meditating 18 hours a day. And Ramana's reply was, what good does it do him if he thinks he's meditating? What they were pointing at was that there is this innate quality of awareness that makes distinction. But in all of us, the moment our attention gets gripped by some agitation in our system, our attention focuses in a way where it kind of loops on itself, it gets stuck. So how to free that up, yeah? It's like just to recognize that actually all that's going on, when you notice that your thoughts are spinning or that there's emotions, those are all movements, automatic unconscious movements that to get away from a certain sensation. So it's a knee-jerk, it's an automatic, nobody does it. But in that movement, the sense of me is born. It shows up as a sense of me. And then the sense of me thinks it can do something about things. But it's actually it can't because it doesn't actually, it's just a feeling, it's not an entity. There's this capacity to notice these subtle movements, yeah, that's inherent. It's just part of awareness. As this interest develops to be here, this, just this noticing in ourselves, in, the, in you could say, wherever the system starts to be anything less than enjoying the moment, that's where there's, you could say, there's information that's not integrated. Does that resonate with you? know, I would say also what you said about this dynamic of pushing away or resistance, and it, and it works equally, almost the exact same way, with the dynamic of wanting to grasp on and hold Absolutely. on. Yeah. It's actually the same movement. It's not wanting what we have. Exactly. It's, it's wanting somehow for it all to be different in some way according to our standards, but it works the same exact way, I think. Yeah. Well, because, you know, one of the things is that there's a certain habit of attention that's dualistic that produces a feeling sense of separation, and yet there's a deep yearning to feel connected. But when we try to get connected from a feeling of separation, it's clumsy. It's always going to be a reach that has uh, quite get the care. That doesn't, yeah. That's <laughs> trying to get what's already there, and also at the same time is afraid that it's not going to be received properly. It's trying to reach and it's trying to defend at the same time, so the signals are very mixed. No, it's, it's a good perspective. Uh, I'm just, I just want to, let's say, for for instance, the remark of Papaji, and even if that was a remark of Ramana Maharshi, I don't necessarily agree, because. Mm-hmm. I can turn and say that actually the quality of attention rests primarily on the state of consciousness. It cannot be otherwise because it is the consciousness that pulls the cart, not the cart that pulls the horses. So that the quality of our attention rests on the quality of our awareness in the first place. Attention, attention, in fact, from the perspective that I often prefer to speak. Attention, what is attention? It's a quality of prana. It's it's the same vital force. (coughs) When I'm looking at you now, my vital force goes to you. When I was looking in front of me at Tanya, then my vital force was going there. Likewise, whatever in the gamut of experiences, wherever our attention goes, prana goes there. But prana is that vehicle, is that connection. It is the active force of consciousness itself. But it rests in the quality of that attention. Absolutely. Based, yes. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So this so, is why, I, I mean, I'm not necessarily agree with, because I know where Papaji was coming from, because people tend to get stuck in whatever they do yeah. in their practices. So, like, sometimes you need to shake the status quo, because I'm sure the next guy, Papaji or Ramana, would say, actually, you know, like, if you're all walking around and trying to work it in your head, 
Maybe you should just sit down and just quieten your mind, and meditation is the best way of doing that. If you examine what Ramana's invitation was, no matter what happens, you ask who's aware of it, and the answer must be I am, and then the question, yeah, who am I? Yeah, so all that it is is it's... What it is, it's working with attention and returning attention to its source. It's the Atma Vikara, yes. Yeah. But there's, like, for instance, like, because you, you joined us, I'm not sure if you've seen the nature of this panel. No. It's the human body, it's it's divine presence. Yeah. So it's like kind of a specific perspective, let's yes. say, where the negation of the human body, which is a very, very obvious in the non-dualist circles today, yeah. is at the price of throwing Huge price. water Huge baby with the water yeah. and I would say that because we did actually mention Ramana Maharshi earlier Rick and then I did that, made that remark that even Ramana's awakening itself his life force was first awakened not the other way around and when people often ask what is primarily and you cannot avoid avoid to run this process through this through this very physiology because it has to come back and the fruit of realization would have to be lived through this body yes, until so this body will free the elements back to its... In what I was talking about, how if we look really simply, I think all of us can see that what we call the world, what we call everything, time, space, energy, is all simply experience or sensations, to be more precise, or even deeper than that, information. And what we call the body, how do we know we have a body? We experience it. So it's all an experience. The whole movie, everything, including the body, is an experience. Now, you could say, once you recognize that this whole, this whole thing is an experience, ultimately just sensations, then what opens up is the capacity to rest and to notice the sensations and the movements, how the system relates to the sensations. Because the moment there's a knee-jerk to get away from sensations... And then that's what we call the personality. The personality is an organization of resistance to the sensations of now. It's like there's all these different movements to just get away from just here. In terms of what's not common is to explore, enjoying the experience of now. Most of all, we're enduring the experience of now. We're putting up with it. You know, it's like there's a... Oh, life is a drag and then you're dead you know that's that kind of <laughs> life sucks and then you die life sucks and then you die so there's a subtle resistance going on almost all the time and if that's not noticed it just keeps going it just keeps running sure yeah so in the moment we can just look here wherever there's any kind of like enduring rather than enjoying because this is the only moment we have and, you could, and you could call yeah. it this is the beloved I mean which yeah. isn't but yeah. even the realized one on the level of Ramana Maharshi, would jerk off from the danger. And scriptures say that even in the enlightenment, yeah. the impulse to preserve one's well, that, organism yeah, is an some, inborn. Yeah. So yeah. this is this, it's very important because it's an answer to you in terms yeah. of, you see, because what we're tackling here is that, let's say, erroneous understanding that somehow yeah. physiology is not important. This no. has a mandate to yeah. live as long as it can, and it will. It'll, yeah. it'll do that automatically. There has to be the distinction when there's real danger and when it's just like a sense of existential yeah. danger. Right. Yeah, so that distinction needs to be there. So you can't stand in front of a car coming at you and say it's an illusion. That's a joke. Yeah. Sure, but we're not even talking about that. But the, the thing about he said about, about sensations, I think, is significant to our whole topic of consciousness and physiology because almost always, if not always, 
when, as the physiology refines through spiritual practice, there are physiological sensations or you know sensations associated with that refinement that one notices. Every time some vasana gets released, you might notice something in the heart or head or someplace. And so you know we get kind of sensitized to to more acutely aware of that stuff. And then if we're not oblivious to it, we can facilitate its unwinding. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, for sure. And, and what's interesting to notice is that I would say the difference between hard noticing and gentle noticing, it's like yeah. hard noticing always has this agenda of getting rid of forcing. or changing or fixing or forcing. Yeah. And gentle noticing is an inquiry. Just, oh, wow, there's this movement honoring it. You could say, okay, wow, and what's it... What's its function? What, what's going on with it? So there's just an exploration of what. Is it actually necessary in this moment? Because a lot of these movements are conditioned. You know, like somehow the system is responding on old, old information. Like when we meet here and I recognize everyone here as an experience happening in me and I'm not trying to... You, you're speaking about this direction of prana. Like it's possible that we can all be aware of each other right now. Without that, we focus just one place. We can. All we, be, are, we are. We yeah. are. Actually, we are. Actually, because yes, yes, yes. Actually, can I just say something? Because the thing is, I think we are all so aware of the non-dual perspective, and that's why I, I think we're all here. I think actually, I'm really grateful to this topic because it's so it's so rare. I think that the body is actually given some sort of importance. <laughs> in this non-dual perspective. Besides you know? just being unreal. Yes, and I'm so grateful to this, actually, to, to actually give attention to the body and, and, you know, focus on how we can support and prepare the body. I would just want to say something else, because I mentioned earlier the seven tissues of the body, even physiological body, is still way misunderstood in our present culture, way misunderstood. Ayurveda barely made its steps into the Western collective consciousness a few years ago. It was only recently re-established in India as the national system of medicine because it was suppressed and eradicated from India by the colonial rule. Ayurveda itself is a completely, totally holistic system. There is a path to self-realization just by bringing all the humors of the body to a complete balance. Then you don't need to do anything. But it is not easy in our day and age. But Ayurveda speaks of that. You know, if one understands what these seven tissues, they all have precise name and what happens in terms of the food we ate. You know, like when I started Ayurveda, it, it really, really made a strong impression on me. Is that in terms of what really food is. You know, food is not something like you just eat and then it sustains you or feeling good or it's lovely. Okay, one can be happy with that. But it's interesting that the food that we eat goes through a progressive stage of digestion as it nourishes each progressively subtler tissue until it becomes a biological consciousness within the human body. Do you see? Any of, us, any of you who have uh, any ground in Ayurveda will, will understand exactly what I mean. It's like you eat first contact of the food with your mouth plasma then it becomes part of your blood it nourishes it has to be digested on that level digestion does not finishes on the level of the gut it's the biggest misunderstanding the food I ate today will take 28 lunar days before it will become my sperm or before it will become the quality of my sperm and what is sperm? 
is a biological substance which gives birth to new life. It's a very interesting fact. So if we ignore all this, right, we are kind of completely living in this very superficial understanding even what is this physical body. And I feel that in the spiritual community today, it's the time when we understand what this human body is. Because this human body is divine on every level. And it is experiential. Those of us who have experienced that know that there is absolutely no free space, even on a physiological level. It's all filled, filled with divine energies. And these divine energies are directly perceivable. They are not perceivable through the sense of smell, sight, touch, taste, or what have you. But they are perceivable on that strata which give birth to the elements and the sensory perceptions themselves. You see? So this is very important. So this, you know, like this, when I read about that, that what I ate today will become my immunological substance that sustains me in 28 days through progressive digestive process and through nourishing all these tissues of the body that were aforementioned earlier. Right? How many have heard the term no. soma? Yes, soma. Soma is said to be the, the finest product of digestion which can be produced by the body if the body is completely normalized or stress-free. And uh, it is said to be responsible for um, the refinement of perception after self-realization mm -hmm. such that one, one's perception refines to become celestial so that one perceives the celestial field as an ordinary mm -hmm. yeah. nature of one's perception. So soma is said to be the, the sort of the physiological cause or reason for that. Just thought I'd throw it yeah, in. Absolutely beautiful. And what that soma, that it, it's it's said to be kind of I don't know. Is, maybe is it a natural? It's almost like it's so, almost non-physical kind of physical. No, it's, it's, the junction it's of physical it, and non-physical. It's subtle, but it actually manifests in the physical body as the Perfect. hormone issued by <laughs> pineal gland. The pineal gland, this is the real meaning of the Rigvedic churna, churning of the ocean, and this is the real meaning of the pressing Soma Pavamana, all these nine mandala, if you're familiar, what is nine, ninth mandala of the Rigveda. It's all about that. It's just in metaphorical, allegorical language. Pressing Soma to satisfy the gods. What pressing? That rekindling of the pineal gland, which deities? The deities that sustain this physiology throughout throughout its total structure. Because this physiology is divine, full stop. This is the Adam Kadman. This is the Purusha. It's not just some kind of like a dream-like, you know. It was taught at some point. But we reach time in our history. Like, this is why the gentleman earlier who mentioned Kashmir Shaivism, I'm very pleased because it's one of the doctrines, one of the philosophies where I found full answer to my own experiences. Because it did not negate nothing. It includes absolutely everything. To me, it's the integral system. It actually helped me to understand the teaching of my own master, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Because before that, science of creative intelligence presented by him, which is now being presented by John Hagelin, seemed to me too intellectual, if you will, too scientific. But through my own experiences and the, let's say, verification of that in Kashmir Shaivism, I understood perfectly what Maharishi used to say. Remember, life is 200%. 100% of absolute and 100% of relative. Oh, that's wonderful. You cannot live life on less than that. I even received a letter that apparently 
I'm featuring now Eckhart Tolle's blog because Eckhart Tolle talks about some kind of like 80% being an absolute and 20% being in the relative world like an ideal situation. <laughs> Confusion, it's a nonsense. The true non-duality, true non-duality, is when in the midst of every physical activity you experience yourself as yourself. Nothing, nothing is profane or sacred anymore. It completely overlapped, merged and fused. It's like a very good shake my wife makes in the morning. Everything that put in, really good blender we have. Well, <laughs> used to have. <laughs> We're traveling, everything is in storage, but that's, that's the example, you know? I would say probably in the last year of my life and my journey, the, the growing edge of my realization, if you want to call it that, is that there's that, that reality, that life, that God, that consciousness, whatever you want to call it, is absolutely a seamless whole. And that even the, the distinction between relative and absolute and what were the words you were using just now? The, the relative absolute thing is simply a linguistic thing. It, that there's really no dichotomy like that in reality. You know, it's just a way that we can then talk about certain aspects of reality as if there were aspects, but reality is so completely whole. It's like, I, I've often thought of this analogy of the concave convex of a lens. A lens is both concave and convex at the same time. There's not a convex lens and a concave lens. It just depends on which way you turn the lens. Turn it one way, it's convex. Turn another way, it's concave. You know, that, that, that this, what we call life, is really, really one. And it's hard for me, I really haven't got a way of talking about it yet, even. Well, there's a stage of development at which there appears to be a dichotomy. Yes. You know? And that's why some people say there is a dichotomy. But yeah. it's just that the, the progress hasn't continued to the point where it's recognized where there, that there is that dichotomy. <coughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, very, a, it's a vi very valid, very vital process. The, the true detachment is necessary, and it's only possible when subject and object stand yes. in opposition to each yes. other when we literally experience But it's not the end, that's all. No, exactly. it's, it's not it. It's an intermediary stage, it's in, term, in, in term, what you call mm -hmm. it, an in term, an accessory stage in, in evolution of consciousness. The dichotomy of relative and absolute is used to address identification, but where it misleads is when we start thinking that the absolute is the opposite of the relative. Right. For it to be the opposite, it would have to be related. Separate. It would be relative relative right. means yeah. to be related good, good right right so if the absolute were the opposite of the relative it would be something else well we've all heard that right but the continuing use of those terms seems to reintroduce that hypnosis that they are separate mm -hmm. so as you were saying the the absolute in experientially is that absolute seamlessness to where there's a distinction that's used in language and in teaching right but in terms right. of experience forget it Exactly. Yeah, because we use we use the word awareness and experience, but if you try and find a boundary between awareness and experience, it yeah. isn't. I'm at a point where I'm really kind of getting a little disgusted with the word non-duality. For me, at the point in my life that I'm at now, the term non-duality just brings up more sort of problems than anything else. Because it, it's just like, well, if there's non-duality, then there's duality, and then you've got a duality again. Well, for <laughs> who? Know? For who? 
Yeah, right. For the one who's still confused by that, but then if we start talking about needing to get beyond non-duality, then you introduce another... No, I'm not whole, even saying and that. And you haven't, but other teachers have. Now, mm-hmm. now we're going to talk about going beyond non-duality, and then yeah. someone's trying to go there. And so, I'm just saying that the terms themselves are, are more and more meaningless to me. But maybe it serves as a provocation. You know, maybe it just serves as a stimulus for conversation. It, it is that. I mean, it's linguistic. It can be used in teaching. Yeah. No, that's exactly what I mean. It's it's fine as long as we use it in a linguistic way and for teaching purposes and stuff. We get into trouble when we start taking it as being real somehow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All languages like that, exactly. I think one of the most yeah, helpful yeah. attitudes is to, to adopt a charitable attitude to language. Yes. Yes. And that's what we It's got its limitations, but it's what we've got to work with on one level, and that's fine.